90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I taught my first class today in seven months. (laughs) Weird. It was so weird. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. I felt deranged or something. I was really excited, actually. Like, I feel like last night was the first time where I haven't been super nervous to teach. I'm always just a little bit nervous, you know? I'm like, I'm not nervous anymore. I've been doing this long enough. And I got there, and I think I was too enthusiastic. (laughs) (laughs) So I think maybe I might have some people drop the class before because I was real excited. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. Um, It was Paleo Mag, though, so I was really excited. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) That's a rough class to get people to sign up for to start with. Exactly. (laughs) But it is better because we don't have a Grav and Mag class anymore because of, yeah, Um, because of staffing. And so. Right. So there was at least one undergrad that signed up because they had to have Grav and Mag, and so they're allowing Paleomag to count for his magnetics course. <laughs> and I, I say this not directed at you all there as a group, but geophysicists, there's more to geophysics than seismic. Oh, so much more. You could have a job in a second with the USGS if you did Grav and Mag, but that's just what I've heard, so there you go. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's that's interesting because I've actually been reading a book on the history of our understanding of Earth's magnetism. <gasps> no kidding. What yeah. book is that? It's called North Pole, South Pole. Okay. And it starts with like the ancient Greeks, and I am now all the way up to Redbed Ted and his <gasps> work on Redbeds. Oh my gosh, I am so excited. I'm so upset I have never read this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exhaustive. Um, like talks about how we've started making maps of magnetic declination and trying to figure it out and all these like physical models that people try, like sculpting spheres of lodestone. And yes. putting like little little grain size things on the surface to try to understand the magnetic field and what dip would look like on a sphere. Oh my gosh. Is this um is it Jillian Turner? Who's the author on this? I am looking yes, it is. Okay. All right. Because there are an awful lot of children's books called North Pole South Pole. <laughs> When I just... Yes, North Pole, South Pole, the epic quest yes. to solve the great mystery of Earth's magnetism. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm gonna, about 70% through it. I'm going to order it right now. How exciting is that? I may have my students like read from this if it's that good. Hmm. So I, I'm i doing it in my... I'm trying to do mornings reading with my eyeballs Oh, okay. before I go into work. Because eyeball reading is superior to book reading i don't think so but it's different (laughs) i don't think so either that comment is strictly for my friend lisa who probably will never hear it but she judges me incessantly for listening to audiobooks so (laughs) i mean considering how few books most people read or listen to after they graduate uh yeah i'm a fan of anything that's exactly 
what I said and what she would say publicly. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, so I've been doing eyeball reading in the morning and then, you know, listening to an audio book on my drive and oh, that's kind awesome. of the normal times that I would. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have, today I finished an audio book, uh, which makes my third book since January 1st. <gasps> and Oh, I'm so proud. Right along. That's amazing. Um, I am on my fourth book. Yeah, I just finished my third book two days ago as well. Um, I wish that I felt better about that, but said aforementioned friend Lisa is on her sixth book, and I'm a little upset at losing. Wow. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Yep. We will not discuss book quality. That is for another podcast. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I was thinking, I've been revisiting a lot my little list of um, resolutions already this year. And I will say that not to, you know, ruin the show 52 shows from now. Uh, I can't give up my bullet journal. That was dumb. And I'm back in it to win it. (laughs) (laughs) So dumb. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) So I had assigned because clearly I have a lot of notebooks and I had assigned some notebooks for specific things and you know I still do my like three my smart goals like I'm still doing that but now I've I've recommitted to the bullet journal like that was dumb I can't possibly handle 12 different notebooks so (sighs) because the problem is do you go chronologically like this is my book Every time I want to write something down in a notebook, I'm going to use this one book, which is what the bullet journal is for. Or do you say, well, this is my research notebook. This is my, you know, workout notebook. God knows that one hasn't been used. But, you know, (laughs) this is this note. This is my to-do list notebook. Yeah. And it turns out that was too much for my brain. I didn't like that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're back together in case anyone was worried about it. (laughs) I mean, I think that there's value to saying like, nope, this was not something that I actually want to do and I don't need to stick to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that just being off of it for like three weeks gave me a better understanding of how to like come back to using it. So there's that. And I will say my year of yes has already backfired outrageously. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, I've been asked to like do some talks. I'm super nervous about doing that. I would totally get out of. And now I'm like, I told myself I was going to say yes to all these opportunities. <laughs> well, that's not backfiring. That's working. I guess <laughs> it is working very well, but my brain is angry at me. <laughs> right. So yeah, so that's where we are. But <sighs> yeah, I just needed you to know that I'm back with my bullet journal. <laughs> I'm I'm glad. Okay. I could feel the tension from over here. I thought so. I thought you could. Oh, yeah. So, hopefully, moving forward, the rest of the year will be okay now. Right. <laughs> My to-do list are restored. <laughs> oh, well, I tell you, I've been, uh, you know, with the, all these really cold temperatures and everything, I have still made it to the gym my three times a week that I was shooting for. Awesome. Um. That is awesome. 
being, you know, still like, I know it's not going to be a perfect every week, but just doing something's better than doing nothing. Yes, absolutely. hundred uh, percent. So we'll see. I am still, I, this time I am doing it much more monitored than I was before in the sense that like, yes, I am tracking my resting heart rate. Yes, I am tracking my weight rate. Mm. Um, yes, I am tracking my O2 saturate. Like all of these things to be like, okay, I'm going to collect data and see, does this do anything for me or not? Gotcha. And make a decision on future action on that. Gotcha. That's a <laughs> that's a good way to approach it. Because I think I was getting overwhelmed with like all the data, but I think maybe I was overwhelmed with data that wasn't being analyzed as opposed to just data in general. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like I just wasn't using it, so... It was making me anxious, but. Well, because part of me is like, yes, I would like to have, you know, a lower resting heart rate. Mm-hmm. Everybody says that going and doing, you know, a little bit of cardio two, three times a week is going to make that happen. And a lot of these people are also the same ones. They're like, I feel so much better when I come home from the gym. And I have never said that. Not once. <laughs> really? So it's like, no, Everyone... I want some data to back this up. That's very interesting. Yeah, because everyone's like, well, you never regret it when you go. I don't know. There's oh, a lot always. Of, there's a lot of stuff I could have been doing with that time. So, yeah, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, what did I accomplish? Like, I turned a bunch of calories into heat that got dissipated into some <laughs> exercise machine instead of sitting there turning calories into code in front of a computer. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to need to remember it to recover from that one. Turning calories into code. Oh, that's good. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> so with the cold temperatures, since you mentioned them, uh, the university closed campus on Tuesday, which was supposed to be our first day back, right? Um, and so Tuesdays happens to be when I teach most of my classes. <laughs> and one of them is a one-week-only class. So it's like, they essentially canceled the whole first week. And I've been a professor now long enough that I don't rejoice in closing. I actually get angry because now it's messed up my syllabus and all that stuff. Right. right. Um, and so I said, well, no, like I'm going to record. I'm going to record me going over the syllabus and the students can watch that because I'm not going to waste that time next week. It's a one day a week class. And so I recorded that and I said in my email to them, you need to watch this recording by next week. By the way, there will be a quiz. I will give you the answers to the quiz in the recording. It's not like you have to take notes and remember everything I say. And so periodically, as I was going through the syllabus, I'd say the answer to question number one is green. Okay. <laughs> and then I had to remember and write down, like, what is question number one, which is, you know, what is my favorite color? And, you know, blah, 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 syllabus stuff. Answer to question number two is Hank. That's my dog's name, Right. And then I said, at the end, I was like, the answer to question number five is 42. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And so instead of like, you know, I have to be cognizant of this because I am really big on putting in like cultural references and stuff. And I had to realize not everyone gets those. So I wrote on my quiz, the question says, what is the answer to life, the universe and everything, obviously. And then I say... This is from the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Obviously, or this um, identifies me as a nerd. 
And I said, even if you don't know the answer to this question, I told you what the answer to number five is. So write that here. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yep. So I'm eager to see how many students actually know what Hitchhiker's Guide is. Yeah. No, I remember like when I was, you know, a student and instructors when we would have a, a, a weather closure would say like, well, here's either here's the notes from what we were going to go over or here's the video of the lecture. And I'd be like, they can't do that. And of course the response, especially the crew we had in the meteorology faculty at that time <laughs> was we can do whatever we want. Yeah. A hundred percent. They sure could. And yes, now in, in a different position, I 100% understand it. <laughs> and so it was very interesting because they closed campus and that's all they said. They didn't say class was canceled. They said campus was closed. And I think that was a very careful crafting on the university's part. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Because I read all of the announcements to be like, do I need to, what do, can I, can I do this? <laughs> like, what, what is this? And then I said, yeah, I'm going to do it. Now, my class that meets Tuesday, Thursday, I was like, ah, forget it. It's fine. Like, I posted the syllabus. I'll still go over it. It's whatever. But to miss a whole week when you only have 16 weeks, right? (laughs) Yeah, and that's not much. I know. I remember those meteorology classes where they were like, you know, we only have 16 weeks, and we see each other for, you know, an hour and a half a week. And I thought, wow, that is not much. Yeah, Yeah. we could take this whole class in two days. That's nuts. (laughs) Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, anyway, what else are we thinking about? <laughs> well, we're thinking about more things about wells. We got we really last week. Yeah, we got really excited last week about this. <laughs> we did, and now we're going to continue that excitement. Mm-hmm. And I want to start it with something that sounds really boring, but I think is really interesting, <laughs> which is well casing. So I found this very hard to understand what this was at first until visiting a well site with my engineer to talk about it. Because, I mean, we talked a little bit about when we talked about mud weight and everything, because one of the things that the mud does is keep the hole open. But what if you need to keep the hole open like for good? right? You have to do a thing called casing the hole. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, we talked about having to balance between keeping the hole open and fracturing the rock and blowing all your mud out into it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what if you drill into a formation that has pressures so different than the formations above it, or you go so deep where the lithostatic and hydrostatic pressure are different enough mm-hmm. that you can't satisfy that condition along the whole length of the well. Right. So you got to protect the hole and all the equipment by, yeah, putting, uh, putting an annulus around it. <laughs> yeah, and so casing really is just pipe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but man, that sounds so simple. And it's not because there are so many different sizes and more importantly for the things you just said, so many different weights of casing. And this is one of the things, yeah, that you have to, I mean, you got to imagine like having a drill string and all that stuff is really heavy, 
but casing is really heavy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you were talking about drill strings. You're like, oh, you have some million pound drill string. That's a lot, but whoa. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because the casing is, it's got to stand up to the corrosion. Mm-hmm. It's got to stand up to flow through it for decades. Mm-hmm. And it's got to stand up to the lithostatic and hydrostatic pressures. Right, exactly. So we would use two different, and this happens a lot when you drill for anything um, that's below the water table or if you're drilling for really deep water. So we would use two different sizes of casing, and you would drill through the water table, and then you would case the well. And so you, you do some drilling, and you take some time off, and you put this pipe in the well, and you cement it, and that is so none of that mud or any of the stuff from down deep, which could be briny, you know, it could be oily or lots of gas. So none of that gets into the water table. So that's one way that through, you know, resource drilling, you're protecting the stuff that's further up, like the fresh water. Yeah. Or if you're drilling a water well, you want to make sure that you draw your water up and don't lose it into shallow formation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if you got something deep, yeah, that would be a pain if you're drilling for that and then it's gone by the time you're trying to pump it out. And you want to keep that shallow, nasty water out of your well. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Like, um, like you, do you want all that surface runoff that's got all the road grime and the the crap from mm-hmm. the chicken houses across the street and everything and no you don't want that in your well yeah that is exactly right and depending on what type of rock you have you have to go certain depths to get away from all that surface junk too depending on your soil so that's where the importance of casing comes in it's not just use this pipe to case the hole i think the science of the casing is very important engineering wise yeah, and so the casing, it's kind of a telescoping string. Like, obviously, every piece of casing that goes down has to fit within the casing that's cemented above it. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So it's kind of this telescoping, like, every time you have to case a section, you have to go down a size. Mm-hmm. Yep, so you got to start with the big stuff. So the surf- surface casing, that's what we would call it, was usually a much larger diameter than the rest of it. And just like you said John, too, like you're going to produce through this casing. So it's like once you've drilled an oil well down to, or a gas well, down to whatever you want it to be, now you've got this casing. Okay, well, you want stuff to flow into the hole. And so you have to perforate the casing, right? You've got to put holes in the casing at the locations of the formations you want to extract whatever from so it can flow into the well and be pumped or hopefully you don't have to pump it. Hopefully it just flows out on its own. And perforating is a very interesting thing in itself. Yes. And (laughs) I'm not going to say one that I know a lot about really. Yeah. And so I don't know a ton about all the different ways you can perforate, but I do know that one way that it used to be done was just shotgun shells. So you yeah. would, I mean, there, there's a long history of putting explosives. Exactly. <laughs> and so like they would just be shotgun. They would just be like shotgun shells that were loaded in there. Um, and at when you got down to the correct depth, you would explode them all off 
and now you got a hole in your casing and now you can flow whatever you need to flow out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And these casing sizes are terrible. <laughs> like, there's a lot of weird eighths, oh. three eighths, and oh, yeah. five eighths. And, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, it's, it's all in the imperial system, of course. Of course. Of course it is. Uh, yes. But yeah, so you start out with the the surface casing, like you said, and that kind of helps prevent all the mud and stuff that's flowing back up during the drilling process from eroding a big hole at the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, on a on land well, that is something in the neighborhood of sixteen inches a lot of the time. Yes, it's really big. And then you pretty quickly go down to uh, some intermediate casings that step down, you know, nine and some change, five and some change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on offshore. The surface casing that leads to the conductor pipe to pull this, the resource out is like 30-odd inches oh commonly. Oh, my gosh. Hmm. Interesting. Is that because, you, like, in an offshore situation, you're going to do a whole bunch of different wells from that one location? I would imagine it's some to do with that, some to do with the fact that you're really, at least now most of the time, connecting a riser pipe yeah to the rig from that okay um and probably also something to do with just how difficult it is to re-enter a hole yeah when Mm -hmm. you're floating a mile and a half above it yeah exactly so yeah i mean it's that's but yeah so Yeah, and so they, they put the casing in, like you said, then they inject cement, which is a whole other science of all the different types of cement you can use oh, to yeah. bond to different types of formations and different types of casing mm-hmm. and yes. minimize corrosion. And then to check the cement job, they run ultrasonic logs. Mm-hmm. And there's also a, a less commonly used tool now uh, called radial differential temperatures, where they probe the temperature along the casing wall and where there's fluid or gas flowing behind the casing because of a bad cement job, you see a few millikelvin temperature dip. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a lot that goes into making sure casing installation goes right. Because when it goes wrong, that's when you get things like natural gas in people's water wells. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You've got brine pollution and you've got... I mean, you can just, you sometimes you have to abandon the whole hole if you don't have the casing cemented correctly, because then you're losing everything. You're trying to pump out a different formation, so you just can't even get anything out of it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is pretty cool. Like, they drop a little plug down that's got a check valve to make sure that they put cement out the end of the pipe. Mm-hmm but don't have it flow back in because of formation pressure. Right. And then when you're done, you drop another plug on top of that that wipes the the wall of the casing on the way down. And then at the bottom of the well, you've got these plugs and cement. And when you're ready to continue drilling, you just drill through all that and keep going. Drill straight through them. That is unbelievable to me. Uh, it's softer than the rock, probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just like we talked about when you lose tools down the hole and you have to go fishing for them. Yeah, sometimes you just drill through those too, depending on what they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just stainless steel, right? 
guess not a match for carbide tip bits see you later (laughs) now the casing can be you know like big heavy iron pipe um and what i find interesting is you know we do a lot of metal recycling because my husband works in cars right and so especially around here in central oklahoma you know people will steal casing and try to recycle it and because right. it's it's by weight, right? And so they'll steal what's like laying out there. But the recycling places won't take casing um, because, not just because it's probably stolen, but because of what I was talking about with the perforations. So if you have a lot of the casing will have undetonated ordnance essentially in it. And so then yeah. when they go to recycle it, it explodes and messes everything up. Yeah, and depending on what you're drilling into or drilling through, it can even have radioactive contamination. Yeah, could then. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Yeah, so I found that very interesting that, you know, to recycle this stuff is a very specific situation. But it's also expensive to try to pull casing out because it's very heavy. And so sometimes you'll try to pull casing, like in the science well that we just drilled, um, they tried to recover all the casing that they could to reuse it in another job because we didn't care if the, we weren't looking for oil or gas or anything. So it was fine that this relatively shallow well caved itself in after it was plugged. So. Right. And if you're, if you're really trying to drill a cheap well and you just need to block off a formation, but the, and the hole will self support, you can also install a liner. Mm hmm which is like casing, except it's not continuous. It only covers the one particular area of interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a stent. Yeah, and you've got to put like liner hangers in. And I found some interesting numbers. Uh, it was one particular size of casing hanger, the thing that you put the casing on to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, has to... So it was a surface casing hanger size. I don't remember exactly what the size was. But it was several years ago... Over 155,000 of them were installed in that year. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of drilling going on <laughs> around the world. Because you know, we like to think that, you know, we're, we're North America-centric, right? But if you correct. look around the world, that's a lot of a lot of drills. That is a lot. And it's for all kinds of stuff. That's what is alluding to last week it was so interesting to me to go from like oil and gas drilling to like scientific coring and you know they don't care the rigs are the same it's fine yeah <laughs> and so know? i just did the math that's uh that's just about 18 casings installed per hour oh. for every hour of the day for every day of the year oh my gosh uh i believe that from back when i worked in the industry we didn't sleep much it was a lot of drilling so yeah, at least, and right now here in the U.S., that slowed down some. It has, but it's picking back up now, so. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Time, to, time to get back out and, uh, yeah, have a lot more sleepless nights. <laughs> mm. So, yeah. Interesting. so that's, that's what goes in the hole. But then last week we talked about kind of the rig on the surface and the mud system and the, the draw works, the winching, uh, we mentioned the drill pipe and drill pipe. I don't know. Well, I know about where you are. I don't know how common this is across the South universally. And I assume it's pretty common in areas like 
Pennsylvania. Uh, but here, like my fence at our shop property is made out of drill stem. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, at least four houses in my 20 house neighborhood have drill pipe fences. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Because once it gets used enough, the threads are bunged up enough or it's had things happen to it. It's not worth risking losing a drill string. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the pipe gets sold off and yeah. farmers buy it and build fences out of it. That's exactly. Because it's really strong pipe. So we had um, at my kids, when my kid was in daycare, just, you know, a few years ago, um, my husband went to help them install those like shade. They had bought those little shade sails that go over playgrounds and stuff. And that's what they secured right. them to was casing that they had got from someone <laughs> and put in the ground. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So drill pipe and casing used as fence posts, very, very common. But, you know, we did also say that, like, when you have a blowout, that the case, or the, the drill pipe is just like spaghetti. Yeah. And it does bend, just like railroad rail bends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the bottom of the hole, we're actually doing the cutting. The weird thing is, you know, we, we talked about the buoyancy of the drill string last week. Mm-hmm. It, you, It's not heavy enough. To drill, you have to add weight at the bottom of the drill string. Right. <laughs> and we do that in something called the BHA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole bottom hole assembly. Mm-hmm. It's so, <laughs> yeah. It's weird to think that you have to help gravity, but you do. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you know, a drilling rig doesn't push down. Mm-hmm. In fact, the drilling rig is holding weight up. Right. And you're controlling how much is on the bottom. Right. And they're just you, rotating. Your bit weight. Right. And yeah. It's just sitting there rotating. Exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can put a lot of things on your BHA. <laughs> you can. Uh, there's all kinds of fancy drilling motors and bits. Mm-hmm. But one thing that all BHAs are going to have is drill collar. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's just really, really really thick, heavy, almost solid pipe. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So just to give it that extra weight to allow the bit to bite in as you're rotating, as opposed to just sitting there and spinning. And it gives you some rigidity too. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so you want, depending on what you want to do, your drill pipe will have whatever rigidity you need and the BHA. And you would think, well, why don't you want it to just go straight down? Well, no. Lots of wells are deviated, right? John, you talked about that the offshore wells that have huge surface casing. Um, But frequently you'll plan numerous um, legs that will come off of that same surface hole. So you drill one hole down but then you'll have um, different bottom hole assemblies will take the um, will take a turn at different angles off of that one hole, and so you'll be producing out of you know ten plus different wells. And so where do you do that? You have to have a motor there to drive the drill uh, bit 
whatever angle and direction you need it to go. Yeah, and some of these are electric, some of them are hydraulic, some of them are powered by mud. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and yeah, so the, the drill collar is where a lot of the weight comes from. A lot of assemblies have heavyweight drill pipe, mm-hmm. which is kind of a transition because they found out if you just take drill stem and screw it into a drill collar, the contrast and strength is so high, <laughs> you almost always shear it Shear right it there. off. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. It just twists so, twist up and is worthless. Right. And so this, this heavyweight drill pipe is kind of a transition between the really heavy drill collars and the really light, I say that in quotes, drill <laughs> stem. That's right. Uh, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, you can put things, there's like stabilizers, which just kind of are little winged things that help hold the tool in the center of the hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can put reamers that help make sure the hole's the right size and there's nothing sticking out in the hole. Mm-hmm. And those help when you're doing your um, your directional drilling and you start to turn because then you have a whole new set of issues because you're not just going straight down, right? You're trying to go at some kind of angle. Yeah. And uh, there's even, there's some tools that they put on there to help like hammer at something. If you've got a, a tool stuck, <laughs> kind of the, these mm-hmm. things where you can kind of, you know, spring tension them and then bam, release all that energy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, what's really wild to me is with the weight of all of this, the drill string is just a big spring. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And it stretches like hundreds of feet sometimes. Yes. Under its own weight. So weird, right? Um, one of the interesting things, and directional drilling is probably its own show that we should have an actual engineer come on to talk about. Um, but just in my, I was in the industry when this was taking off and becoming more common Right. And the weird thing that that drill stem does, you would just think that you've got this big bottom hole assembly, these heavy collars. It's just going to go where you point it. You move the motor and it's just going to go in that direction, but it doesn't. And so you even can get things that we call porpoising, where as you drill at an angle, it keeps wanting to, the drill string wants to like come up actually. So the drill wants to like come up and so you have to keep forcing it back down so you don't even have a straight hole you have this wobbly hole with all of this metal in and that's kind of mind-blowing to me for you know a mile in length you don't have just one direction that this stuff is really bending as well as stretching yeah (laughs) and then you have to case that it amazes me that any of this works I know exactly and we haven't even talked about because we're not even close to being very well versed in this all of the cool science stuff that you can put on the end of that bha yeah i mean there's like logging while drilling tools and mm-hmm. yeah stuff that also it's really hard to find information on because there's so much of it is a trade secret right exactly so many proprietary scientific assemblages that you can put on because back in the day and in cheap wells, you drill and then somebody else comes out with all the science tools and sticks them down the hole and runs that. But when you're spending so much to have a directional drilling rig and directional drilling assembly and all that, 
you want to know exactly where you are. So you put those things behind the bit um, because you want to know exactly where you are and get some science along the way. It's very interesting. Yeah, I do remember when I was teaching a Python class that somebody who worked for an energy company was in it. And they had one laptop they were doing the class on, and they had another <laughs> laptop set up that was live feeds yes. <laughs> from logging while drilling rigs. And they would sometimes have to like run out of the room and be like, no, no, like something's going on. Like, because exactly. they could see as the rig was drilling through and they were monitoring multiple rigs. Mm-hmm. And so at the very tip of your BHA is the, is the actual bit, the thing that's doing the cutting. Right. And there's a lot of vibration there. And so some of these things like gamma ray, you can't have real close to that because it won't give you a good reading. And so when you're getting that data in real time, the bit is actually like 30 to 60 feet beyond that reading you have. So that's why the, oh my gosh, we have to do something now because the bit's actually beyond this terrible thing that we just saw on our data. Yeah. Yeah, because you may need, even if it's something extreme, to come back up and deviate. Mm-hmm. Right, which is hard and expensive, and yeah, and it takes time, and time is money, right? So, mm-hmm. well, and it, I know it sounds like, man, this is a lot of work. Like you know, you put all this pipe down, and you're you're drilling, and then you got to change a bit, so you got to pull it all back out, and you put it back down, you drill deeper, and then you encounter some formation. So then you got to pull it out and you got to run casing and cement it and then run a log. Mm-hmm. And then you got to go back in with, yeah. Yeah. Like you are, you are <laughs> tripping so much pipe in and out of these holes. Oh. It does take a long time. That's why these rigs run 24 seven mm-hmm. for months. Yep. Four months. That is exactly right. And they run 12 hour, 12 hour shifts and they're called towers. They're spelled tours pronounced towers so that's a greenhorn thing that'll get you in trouble if you say you're on the night tour it's pronounced tower (laughs) yeah in 12 hours doing all of that stuff is hard work (laughs) for sure yes and a lot of the rigs now do have some automation that eliminates a lot of the really the the jobs where you lost arms or teeth or legs Mm -hmm. if you were lucky Mm -hmm. yeah a lot of that is automated or now that we've got uh, top drive instead of Kelly drive, there are some ways to make that a little safer or even bottom hole drive. Yeah. Uh, on the, on the big rigs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but there's sure. still a lot of rigs running out there with Kelly bushings in the floor a and million these of them. big pipe wrenches and chains and mm-hmm. yep. a lot of fingers donated to the well. Yeah. And I mean, because of this whole time thing, um, you know, time, is important too when you're tripping if you don't have casing in the hole because you don't want to lose the hole, right? So you have to do it as fast as you can because every second you don't have things in the hole, it could collapse. And so that's a very scary um, situation. And on some, and then sometimes, and this is all human issue right here, you know, sometimes they're waiting on casing or something like that. And so they have to do what's called circulate. So they just keep everything in the hole and they just circulate the mud and you just hope that your hole stays stabilized while you're circulating and waiting for pipe or waiting for whatever, um, to show up out at the rig that you need. 
all the while burning money at a comical rate. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, wells are millions of dollars now in terms of oil and gas wells. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the cheap ones, I mean. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's very interesting. But it's also interesting in terms of the science of what you can do to try to see what's under the ground, right? You know, because we say in geology... You know, you can go and look at the stuff on on the surface, and that's great. But what's happening under the ground is where you have to trust a geophysicist, and we don't want to do that, right? So no. <laughs> if you're lucky, you have core from somewhere. But that's four inches of rock. You know, that's all you get is this tiny little snapshot right and it's not even anybody that's been in the field looking at rock can tell you yeah if you drilled six inches to the left you might not get the same four inch core exactly you wouldn't get the same thing it's an unbelievable crapshoot really to to drill to core a well and hope that you get everything you need out of it so it's shocking that we can do this at all as humans really yes Mm -hmm. yeah and, I, and then another thing that I don't know much about, but is important to mention, is the thing called the blow-off prevention, right? Because this, you probably hear a lot about, because when these fail, things are catastrophic. Yeah, so BOPs, or blowout preventers, and I, I think if you called it a BOP, that's what you would get. Yep. <laughs> I've never heard it pronounced that way. It's always BOP. Yep, mm-hmm. that is exactly right. And yeah, if you do have one of those situations where you're losing control of the well, your formation pressure is higher than you expected and you're blowing mud and stuff out, Mm -hmm. uh, these are just big hydraulics that pinch it shut. Exactly. It's just like sealing a straw. (laughs) With a few hundred tons. (laughs) Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, that's all it does. It just, that's what they use to just say, nope, we're done. And so, you know, all the awful well issues that you have are when the BOP fails. And so. Right, which was the case in Deepwater Horizon. Right, exactly. exactly. Among the many other things that happened to that poor well. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was the blowout preventer failed. Right, Exactly. And it's like you need to have an idea of what you're up against to have the correct blowout prevention in place to begin with as well. Right. And there are a couple types, but they all basically do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, yeah. There's just... ram, and, ram and annular preventers. But yeah, the, the idea is just seal the, the pipe off as quickly yeah, as you can. Yeah, mechanically squishing it, which is crazy. <laughs> And then above the BOPs, generally, you've got uh, a Christmas tree of valves to let you do all kinds of various things. Mm-hmm. Yep, when you're done. So once you're done and the rig's moved on, you put up your Christmas tree, which has yeah, all these valves and everything. And that's when, you know, once you're done and your rig is moved on, that's when you do all the other things to the well before you start producing, like, fracking, right? But that's probably a lot to say about that. I will say... I got to go on a frack job a couple of times, and it was not as exciting as I had hoped, but under the ground, lots of exciting stuff is happening. 
Well, it's not exciting watching a pressure trace on a screen inside a <laughs> shipping container. That is exactly, yeah, that's exactly what I did. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. And dropping the ball was the most exciting thing, but we'll talk about that in another episode dedicated just to that. <laughs> yes, for sure. Because <laughs> uh, oh, you were doing interval fracking. Oh, fancy. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely true. Yes. Yeah. So we'll, we'll definitely do an episode on, on fracking because fracking has a pretty interesting history, including uh, <laughs> nukes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Not, so. And not just in the, man, that thing was nuclear it was so big. <laughs> yes. No, I, like detonating <laughs> nuclear weapons inside like wells. actually doing it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got to... Which is the part that always fascinates me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, can't wait to hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> is this because it's been cold that you did this? <laughs> so it is because it's been cold. And it's also because I couldn't find the one I wanted, which was by these same people, which was... Is cable knit or <laughs> the better sweater to wear or something like that. But instead, I found this one, <laughs> which is not the cable knit sweater, but it is impact of wet underwear on thermoregulatory responses and thermal comfort in the cold. <laughs> By... I don't know how much they paid these undergrads to participate in this, but it was not enough. <laughs> so Bakaveg and Nielsen back in the 90s, Put a lot of college dudes in wet underwear <laughs> and then asked them how they felt. This is in the Journal of Ergonomics, by the way. Which mm-hmm. I understand. Okay, so clothing keeps us warm by holding air still close to our skin. Right. If you sweat and you get it wet, water conducts heat better than air. Mm-hmm. So you get cold and that's a problem. Right. So we want to wick that sweat away from the skin to keep the air still close to the skin. Okay. That all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. But they want to know, like, does multi-layer make a difference? Do different fabrics make a difference? And for some reason, they decided to monitor, I think it was like 14 places on the skin. Yes. Temperature. Yeah. Have them fill out these questionnaires. Uh, they monitor their heart rate. And they continually monitored their rectal temperature for core temperature over the course of an hour per experiment. And the experiments were these multiple different types of underwear in the dry and then the wet condition. Uh Uh-huh. And their weight loss. Oh, yeah. And their weight loss. Yeah. I thought that was the weird one, too. Why would you? Yeah. And so... Well, I I guess you want to know how much water evaporated out of the clothing. Yeah. But then they weighed the clothes, too. So I don't... There was anything that you could do, they did. Um, I think this paper is interesting because this is certainly one of those ones where it feels like people would pick on this and say, what are we paying for in science? But I will say I also think that this is... This paper specifically highlights the importance of good writing (laughs) because it is very scientifically written for what I think was not a lot of gain (laughs) that we learned, right? 
Yeah, and like, okay, so some of the results seem relatively obvious. Two layers is better than one. Yeah. But then a lot of things are like, well, we can't separate out the effect of the materials because we pre-soaked the underwear, and that's not how sweat works. Sweat works by soaking it from the inside out. Which I want to tell you, they had three other articles that they had authored on that part, too. Yeah, and I was like, mm-hmm. that seems like the more logical way to approach this. Of like, we're going to put this person on a treadmill, though I guess you can't run right. with a thermometer 80 millimeters up your butt. I mean, maybe you can. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I thought that was interesting. They Such specified a... the depth. I but... also thought that was interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and this is where, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. So they only had eight participants. Because I guess once you say, I'm going to stick this thermometer up your butt and make you sit in wet underwear for an hour. <laughs> Multiple times. <laughs> Multi- yeah, exactly. Like seven times or something like that. Like, <laughs> I guess a lot of people weren't into that. But somehow that's enough data to to put, to make a paper out of. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess you'll do a lot for beer money when you're an undergrad. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd hope this would have been a more entertaining read, but I will say it was very well written, that's for sure. And oddly enough, like, yeah, it was thickness and not fiber type. So this is 94, right? So this is right around when all these weird new synthetic fibers are becoming a thing, right? Because I remember we wore jeans in the field for quite a while, and that was the late 90s early 2000s so all the weird we wore jeans for everything for well, jackets for pants absolutely for true. vests <laughs> yes just like old for hats old miners, yeah. <laughs> um, so like i think this was interesting to say like okay well there's these different fibers coming out and that was one of them too was this weird you know double type of polypropylene fiber um but they didn't see any difference in that really at all Right. No, like, and I was surprised at how close, like looking at the graph of skin temperature over time in the wet and the not wet condition. Yeah. Like, it's like a degree different. Yeah, that's it. I thought this would like highlight the dangers of wearing cotton <laughs> as the thing up against your skin because it holds moisture and because that's what I've heard from every professor and every like outdoor person, don't wear cotton, wear wool. Because the cotton gets wet, it stays wet, and that wetness up against your skin will make you colder. And this does not jive with that. No. I mean, that's that's what I was told when I worked on the, the scallop boat. Yeah. Was to wear wool shirts and wool long johns mm-hmm. on deck. Yeah. Don't wear cotton. But they did cotton, and they did wool, and they did a mix and people stayed warmest in the one that was two layers. And it was like a new fiber that was coming out. And so that's why they tested it. Because everything else was one layer, right? And that right. one kept people warmer. And that, to me, was the only significant outcome of this. Unfortunately, I have to agree with you. It was a lot of, well, it was a lot of data from only eight subjects. Yeah. Because they collected so many different data points. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, like, they even measured the time during the dressing procedure. Yes, and I thought that was interesting because I clearly they figured that since we pre-soaked and warmed, gross, this these clothes 
that they might lose a lot of that wetness before they got them all the way on and got the second layer over them. And it turns out, like, that was true. Like, they did lose a lot. Like, they dried significantly during the dressing process. Which even more, right. so why don't you just have them get on the treadmills then and sit down, like, for an hour afterwards, but... Yeah. But there you go. If you wonder what to do to stay warm in these sub-zero temperatures we've been having, uh, layers and thickness. Yeah. Don't worry so much about what it's made out of. Just mm -hmm. use layers. Yeah. So take that, kid. Put those crusty jeans on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, I wear, I wear layers to work every day and honestly, mostly cotton. Yeah. Because it feels good. It does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when somebody says, you'll catch your death of cold in that, you can whip out this paper and say, I don't think so. <laughs> exactly. Oh. <laughs> yep. Well, if you've got thoughts on what type of wet or dry underwear keeps you the warmest, <laughs> uh, I guess we'd like to hear about that. Uh, Shannon, how can they send that in? <laughs> Tell us about your wet underwear. Uh, yeah. Um, don't panic geocast at gmail.com. You can always tweet us. That'd be weird. So we're on X at don't panic geo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going. Patreon.com slash don't panic geo if you also want to help us out. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.